you know, people will think that you're doing this great kind of selfless act. And I always always say, well, like, before you compliment us, like, find out what kind of parents we are, because we could be bad at it. Welcome to How To. I'm Amanda Ripley. Five years ago, Marsha Chatlin and her husband decided they wanted to adopt a child, and they seemed like perfect candidates. Marsha is a Pulitzer Prize-winning author and a professor of history and African-American studies at Georgetown. You might also recognize her voice from Slate's podcast, The Waves, where she was a beloved co-host. My husband and I made the decision um, to become adoptive parents very early in our relationship. Um, My husband had started a PhD. I had just finished one. We were early in our careers, and we just knew that we needed a lot of building time. And I, I felt like... I didn't want to feel like we had to become parents at, you know, this moment because of my age or because, you know, this was the time to have kids, but rather that, you know, we really had a deliberative process. But adopting a child in America is kind of like getting on a roller coaster ride, the kind that can last for, well, years. There are Dark tunnels, sharp curves, highs and lows, intrusive questions, and weirdly inappropriate comments from strangers. It's incredibly, incredibly confusing. And the internet is also infused with very kind of biased or very framed ideas about adoption. In the beginning, they pursued an international adoption, which seemed logical. I'm from an immigrant family. I I figured it would make sense um, for us to adopt from Haiti, where my family is from, because, you know, there's fewer cultural kind of barriers. Years went by. They researched agencies, gathered documents, got many things notarized, underwent background checks and home visits and on and on. At one point, Marsha even got on a plane to hand deliver her documents to the agency in Indiana. I had a bunch of documents like that, you know, copies of our marriage certificate, copies of birth certificates, all of this stuff done. And the idea of putting it in a FedEx envelope. And so I think I got like a plane ticket for like $120. And I was in the privileged position to both have the time um, and money and energy to just fly it on a on a plane, turn it in and just fly home. Um, You know, as a professor and a writer, like, Um, I had a little time off, and this is what I did with my time off. And I was thinking to myself, like, if this stuff is gone, like, what am I going to do? And so all of this is to say that, um, you know, it's, it's a lot. And if that weren't enough, then came COVID and travel restrictions and government shutdowns. So they pivoted to a domestic private adoption, and another year went by. It started to feel like a ride they'd never get off. And then, one day, they got a call. We were like people in, I don't know, like an 80s sitcom, where we were given (laughs) fewer than 24 hours notice um, that a child was available for adoption, our son. Mm -hmm. And we went to Target that morning uh, to get stuff for a baby. Um, (laughs) We had always thought that we would adopt older children. And so... A baby kind of wasn't in our purview for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And so we knew a lot about kind of the feeding issues of two and three-year-olds and attachment issues of toddlers. And we we adopted our son at three days old. Oh, my gosh. Marcia, could you just tell us a little bit about your son? 
Oh my god, he's so cute. No, it's actually... <laughs> he is stunning and so cute Aww. and so sweet and the best. <laughs> so Marsha's now made it through the woods. And that's why we brought her in today to give advice to someone who's just staring off at the forest on the horizon and wondering if the adoption process is right for them. Meet Victoria. Now that I'm in these late 20s, I've been starting to think a little bit more ahead and thinking about having a family. And one of the options that is kind of floating out there is adoption. But what you need to do to prepare for that, um, what kind of steps are taken before you try and uh, adopt a child, all that is pretty opaque to me. Victoria, a PhD student in San Francisco, doesn't know where to start. So today on the show, with Marsha's help, we're going to try to demystify the whole adoption process the best we can and maybe challenge your assumptions about family making altogether. Stay with us. Nearly 140,000 children are adopted by American families every year. And a lot of parents in waiting come to adoption as their last resort. But for Victoria, this is one of the first options she's considering. I think on some level, it's an intuition that this would be something I would really love doing. There's not a certainty for me when I'll be able to have uh, children, or if I'll have a partner, whether that partner will be male or female, these kinds of things made me think adoption might be a good option. Victoria, are you kind of a planner in general? Uh, I would say I'm a planner, yes. I'm the person who has an idea for a trip, and I get a few people to say yes, and then I immediately start planning, and then I have the Google Doc and the links and uh, I love, I think I love planning almost as much as, as the actual experience sometimes. Oh, good. But, this is but good, right, Marcia? Maybe this, maybe this will help out. <laughs> <laughs> so we're not, we shouldn't be shocked that you're thinking ahead on planning for possibly adopting one day. Yeah. You know, just hypothetically speaking, what kind of time frame are you thinking about? Maybe in uh, five to ten years, somewhere in that range. Okay, now you might be thinking, why is she even thinking about this? It's like half a decade away. But as we already heard with Marsha, the process can take years. There are different rules for domestic versus international adoptions, and then other rules that vary from state to state. Plus, private adoption agencies can be their own maze to navigate. My sense was that there are a lot of private adoption agencies that have put up information, but it's hard to know how much of that is universal, how much of that is more specific to their company. I didn't find a lot of resources that seemed to be maybe unbiased or like like uh, coming from the experience of people who've actually adopted. Hmm. And was it easy to understand the process, like step one, step two? I have no idea what the process is. <laughs> so it's not easy to understand. No, not easy. What kind of what kind of research do you do in your in your work? So a I'm a I'm a neuroscientist. Okay, so something very simple and straightforward. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so you're a neuroscientist trying to learn about adoption, and so far, online, it is not making sense. Is that right? And straightforward. <laughs> yeah. Which suggests to me... <laughs> There's a bigger problem here. Um, but I'm wondering, Marsha, what you're thinking hearing this so far. I was also doing a PhD when I started learning a little bit about this, and I couldn't figure a lot of it out. Marsha, if you could just take us back in time and tell us a little bit about what you might tell yourself if you were back at the beginning of this journey. People say really intrusive things to you when you make that decision. And there's mm. a lot of assumptions that are made. Um, there was assumptions that we struggled with fertility issues. There's assumptions that we did this because we thought of ourselves as like good or moral people. I think the first step is you have to disabuse yourself of the notion that um, choosing adoption for family making is kind of morally superior than any other way of family making or that you're saving a child or that you're doing something other than making a choice to build a family. It's like one of many ways to do that. And then I think the second thing is that, you know, it, it's such a personal choice that you do within the context of community. And so I know some people who have been interested in adoption and they know that in their larger family culture, that this would be really hard because either um, they're open to adopting a child of a different race and their family is incredibly racist and problematic. Um, I know that in some families, they have some kind of old school ideas about adoption as a secret. And so that conflicts with, you know, very proven ideas um, rethinking the way that we understand adoption in a family as nothing to, you know, be kept a secret. So there's all of this like stuff. And I think when you start talking to people about your choice, you get like their emotional baggage and their projection and it can get really gross really fast. Part of preparing yourself is thinking about your various family members, the baggage that they're going to bring to this. Oh, potentially. and your personal baggage. Oh, my gosh. I mean, <laughs> I I love being a parent. I love it more than I could ever imagine. I'm having the most fun I've ever had. And having a child can be really emotionally triggering. All you think about is what you were like at that age, who was taking care of you, who didn't take care of you. I mean, if, you know, I highly recommend therapy <laughs> as one of the greatest ways to start this process. So here's our first tip. If you're beginning to consider adoption, sit down with your partner and even your extended family and take a kind of inventory of everyone's expectations. In this way, you can start to build a support network of people you can count on, not just during this process, but into parenthood. Also, check in with yourself or your partner periodically to make sure this choice is still right for you. You can always change your mind. Just because you made one decision at one point doesn't mean that you can't ever revisit it. Um, I think that's really important. And I think the other thing is really um, spending time. I mean, this is also kind of what's problematic about choosing an adoption provider. Sometimes it's hard to get a picture of what the agency is like, because when people are really happy with outcomes, they're very, very happy. And when people are disappointed, they're very disappointed. So I would spend some time just getting to learn about the different providers in the area that you're in and really taking your time to choose who you want to work with. Marsha, do you think it makes sense to start saving money if people can? Yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> That's hard, yeah. I do, because 
you know, again, there are a lot of people who have a lot of feelings about the cost of this. And there's some really, you know, incisive critiques about, you know, is this is are, are you spending money to purchase a child? And, you know, that those discussions can get really um, impassioned. I would see it as, you know, like saving for something substantial in your life. Um, and there's different, I mean, there's a range of costs and they come again at different moments. Some are scaled by your income. Like let's say a, an agency says it's $20,000 and you think that's so much money all at, you know, all at once, but you have to consider that it's a very long process of getting documentation, of, you know, paying for a home study. And so you can think, okay, you know, over three or four or five years, what can I put away towards those costs? It is expensive. That home study that Marsha just mentioned, that's one of the most important steps in this process. And it's not just expensive, it's, well, invasive. We took a psyche valve with a trained psychologist. Um, you have to disclose any uh, prior criminal convictions you've had and explain the situations. Um, our social worker talked to us about our families and our family dynamics. They asked um, if we could talk about our partners and like, you know, what stands out about them. We've had all of, disclosed all of our financial information, our assets, our liabilities. Um, there's reference letters from friends, um, people who you've interact with in different settings, um, you know, your driving record. There's a physical <laughs> um, that looks at, you know, um, your prior medical history, and that can be really um, prohibitive and can also be really intimidating for people with chronic illness or certain conditions. So like they, it's a deep, it's a deep dive, folks. It's a deep, deep dive. Wow. Part yeah. of me is thinking, oh, well, all this, you know, testing, evaluation, and uh, it somehow makes me feel better. You don't know that the, the standards you're being held up to are fair in any way, but something about being, being vetted makes you, or makes me think that I would be more secure and more, more confident in my own ability to be a parent if I were oh, still allowed. I'll be honest. I understand what you mean. I, you know, it's weird. It was, I think it, it is a tough process, but there are parts of it that I'm really grateful for because it's not just kind of like being asked all these personal questions and made to feel very uncomfortable. There's also continuing education that's part mm. of it. And, you know, one of the things that I found in our education process that was really helpful was thinking about um, attachment and, you know, the various ways, you know, parents attached with children. And then there's some real practical considerations about respecting and understanding some of the differences that you will have from your child because um, of the experiences that they may have had in foster care or in orphanages overseas. And then there's some really powerful resources from adoptees who are critical of the adoption system. And, you know, engaging with all of those, I think, is really helpful because it moves you away from the purely romantic idea of becoming a parent uh, to mm -hmm. one that feels like a little bit more nuanced and textured. And I, mm -hmm. think, I, I think that's like a good thing. That part sounds like a wonderful experience. It's like getting a third PhD. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing to prepare for, of course, is the waiting. 
this is like so corny and so cheesy, but um, you know, I would have waited 30 years to be my son's mom. From this vantage point, I could say, you know, it was all worth the wait, but I do know people who really struggle with these very long waiting periods or um, families that have struggled with um, receiving a placement and um, the placement not carrying through to a finalized adoption. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think those are the things that you have to kind of existentially prepare for, even if you can't always be emotionally prepared for. Victoria, is this making you feel better or worse? I'm feeling worse, but uh, <laughs> maybe that's appropriate. Sounds like a really uh, good story once it worked out okay in the end. Yeah, right. Now we know the ending. I have I have a feeling that we are kindred spirits, Victoria, of type A <laughs> brainy types. And so, like, <laughs> I mean, it's like it prepped me. Like, you know, now when we have to file, like, you know, paper, I had to get a social security card for my son and I stayed in the line for like five hours. And mm. it just, it was just like, oh, this is part of it, right? Like mm. parenting is this incredibly like emotional and deeply bureaucratic thing that you do. <laughs> you know, it's like me trying to sign up for swim lessons and getting like shut out every like portal. I'm like, oh, this is, this is what it's like. And um, this is also part of it. Huh, and it puts everything in perspective. So then when you have to get the school health form filled out you're like on it it's not intimidating to you yeah no i'm totally permission slip mom now because you know i was like fbi background check mom for many years so we've already given you a ton of things to do but what about the things you shouldn't do after the break we're going to talk about parenthood and what you should never say to an adoptive parent don't go anywhere We're back with our listener, Victoria, who's considering adoption, and our expert, Marsha Chatlin, who spent five years adopting her son. If you Google how to adopt, you'll get a wide range of results, as you might imagine. But scroll with care, because not all online resources are created equal. Initially, when I wanted to learn more from adoptive parents, a lot of it was about fertility challenges. I I just didn't share that experience. And I do think that there is something that that experience then um, informs how you pursue adoptions. Um, There is a lot of anxiety about family making that happens in some of these online communities. For me, taking in a lot of those narratives was just not going to be healthy for me. So I just didn't spend a lot of time doing that. Um, Mm -hmm. Now that we have our child, um, I'm part of... um, a Black Adoptive Parents Facebook group, and that group is a little bit more diverse in terms of how people came to family making. That's something I've I've thought a little bit about. So my mother is uh, of Asian descent. My father is Caucasian, uh, white, and I think because of that, we we do have some experience, like talking about how it is blending into other cultures and like sticking out. But um, in terms of like actually adopting a child, I think it's best to hear it straight from them, right? To know what they would think in terms of like what, what the ethnicity of an adopted child for me would be. Because maybe, you know, you never know uh, what people will say, even in your own extended family. Yeah, you know, Marsha, you mentioned that people will say intrusive things. Um, 
Can you give an example of maybe some less helpful things that people said to you and maybe also what would have been better so that listeners out there don't make the exact same mistakes if friends and family members are going through the adoption process? So, you know, I I think most of the time people are so well-intentioned and they either have bad boundaries or have been subject to a culture that misrepresents, you know, adoption in so many ways. So I've told people that we were in the process of, you know, seeking to adopt a child and someone will say, well, what's wrong with you guys? You know, like, you know, which one of you has fertility issues? The other things that I've heard from people, it's a knee-jerk reaction where you will tell someone that you're going to pursue adoption and then they tell you a story that they either heard or someone they knew that had a very negative adoption experience Mm. where and and sometimes it's like in a very extreme kind of situation um and i i I don't know i don't know why but the impulse (laughs) maybe it's like to warn the person or to say like oh um i think it what it does it i think it just shows that even with people my age or even a little younger that there's just been a, a lot of kind of generationally negative um, perceptions of adoption so that the first thing you say is like, you know, this child that really struggled within a family structure beca- and they often attribute it to adoption. Um, though we know that, you know, children can struggle in a number of situations. Marcia, what do you think, what do you think is the best way to tackle some of these uh, myths or, or stereotypes around adoption? Because I feel like like you mentioned, there there are two main narratives I tend to hear. One is the saintly adoptive parents, and one is the the sad parents or potential parents struggling with infertility. And it sounds like there's there's a lot more. You know, there are a lot of layers um, that I think are exposed and that are kind of put in your lap in this process. And I think the more thoughtful you can be in how you engage with people and say, well, you know, here are some things that I've considered and I understand that, you know, the choice to parent isn't about choosing everything about your child. It's about being open to a set of experiences and possibilities. Yeah. And it makes me wonder, Marcia, you mentioned that we have these kind of reductionist narratives about adoption, right? Like, and, and Victoria, you mentioned this too. It's either like the parent as savior or the parent as tormentor, uh, what would be a movie you'd like to see, Marcia, about adoption? Oh, that's it. I would love to just see a movie about um, a family that um, doesn't know what they're doing and then <laughs> figures it out and can honestly address the like negative emotions of their child. I mean, that movie no one would go watch. But <laughs> I don't know about like about, you know, an adult child saying like, here's the things that you did well. Here are the things that I wish you could have worked harder on. And the parents saying, thank you so much for that feedback. I love you for giving us that. Like, let's go get something to eat. (laughs) You know, that it it, it isn't like that it doesn't there's that the most dramatic parts of the experience isn't always about how the family comes together. Um, sometimes the most dramatic parts are, you know, the ways that we kind of endure through it, you know? And so I think that's the movie that no one wants to see and no one will make. (laughs) I would totally just needs the right soundtrack, you know? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) 
Here's our next tip. You gotta learn when to engage and when to set boundaries and try to get comfortable with the messiness of families, which includes adoptive ones. The only thing I will say, I remember talking to a friend about this and saying that, you know, there are things about my child's experience of being in our family that I will never fully understand, but understanding that our family can be a source of a lot of joy and happiness and also a lot of, you know, bittersweet emotions and sometimes a place of pain. Embracing that because part of being a parent is being attentive to that, I think is something that you have to become more and more comfortable with. Like there'll be times that being in this family um, may be very painful for my son and really embracing that as much as the moments that being in this family is very joyful for him. And I think that mm. um, taking the time to really, you know, like sit with that, I think mm. um, is, is super, super helpful. Marsha, I'm curious, you're, you're a year into parenthood, right? When, did your son just turn one or? He turned one in late March. Nice. What has surprised you so far one year in? just how much I, I love it. Like so much of my life um, has been defined by being a teacher and watching college students like grow as they learn things. And I get to have that experience on this like tiny and amazing level. Like my son started pointing and now he can point mm. to like the food he wants to eat. And to be able to kind of bear witness to that is just so incredible. That's nice. Yeah. No, I remember vividly when my son was pretty young and he was in his high chair and I was giving him some scrambled eggs or something. You know, all you do is just seems like you just feed him and feed him and feed him and change him and feed him. And he clapped. And it was like, oh, my God, <laughs> it was so awesome. You know, and it is it's a real privilege to to kind of experience that alongside another human. That sounds incredible, guys. <laughs> I think that there are a million different ways to be happy in the world. Um, and I am very, very glad that I got to experience this form of happiness. Victoria, what's something you're looking forward to about being a parent? You know, now that you guys are, are uh, telling stories about your kids, I'm remembering I'm seven years older than my younger sister. And I'm remembering when she was little, even though I was still a kid, like those even that was a kind of magic to see like someone so small uh, starting to become their own person. And I remember the transition from being an only child at age seven to being an older sister at age seven. And mm. it was kind of, it was kind of a shock at the time, yeah. but it was something that, that I really took to. And I, I grew to really, I don't know, cherish that as part of my identity and hmm. Like I was one of the protectors uh, for this mm -hmm. little kid. And that that's something I think I will really enjoy as a parent someday. I have a good feeling. I think you're going to love it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to Victoria for not waiting five years to ask her question and to Marsha Chatlin for all of her hard-earned wisdom. Also, you should definitely check out Marsha's books, including her most recent, the Pulitzer Prize-winning franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America. 
How about you? Do you have a future problem that needs a crystal ball? Send us a note at howto at slate.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-495-4001 and we might have you on the show. And while you're at it, do me a favor. After you're done listening, find the share button on your podcast app and send the show to a friend or family member. That's how we find more people to help. How To's executive producer is Derek John. Rosemary Belson and Katie Shepard produced this show. Our theme music is by Hannes Brown, remixed by Merritt Jacob, our technical director. Charles Duhigg created this show. I'm Amanda Ripley. Thanks for listening.